All right, everybody, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us before the opera for our pre-opera talk. It is wonderful to see everyone. Uh, my name is Andrea Scobie. I'm the Director of Education with Detroit Opera. Uh, welcome and thank you so much for joining us for this incredible, historic opening night of this opera, X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Uh, we are so excited to see this story. We are so excited to have you all with us. Um, and I am pleased, thrilled to introduce uh, an incredible panel of folks um, to speak about this opera tonight uh, as a little window into it before we see uh, the full production. So uh, I have the pleasure to introduce our moderator for the evening, uh, Yuval Sharon, the artistic director, the Gary L. Wasserman artistic director of Detroit Opera. He will be joined by uh, story author Christopher Davis, librettist Tulani Davis, and composer Anthony Davis. Let's welcome them now. Good evening. How is everybody? Nice to see so many of you again. It was just um, a few, uh, feels like just a few weeks ago. In fact, it was a few weeks ago that we did uh, La Boheme here, and I uh, spoke, uh, uh, did a pre-show talk for that uh, opera, which those of you that saw it might recall that we did the uh, opera in reverse order, starting with Act Four and going to Act One. And somebody asked me at this talk, well, what do you think Puccini would have said about that? And I said, well, you know, Puccini died 100 years ago, so I'm not sure what he would have said. And here we are now um, with the great opportunity to have the composer, the librettist, and the story author all here to talk directly to you about this particular production, which is such a great honor. We've had their participation in this piece uh, for two years now, which has been absolutely remarkable. And in the case of Anthony, a daily presence in rehearsal with uh, Robert O'Hara, the director, and Kazim Abdullah, the conductor. And that has made this particular presentation so meaningful because we've had, on one side, a new generation of artists who are interpreting this work, but with the guidance of the original authors. And that's made this a very, very special experience and in many ways also a world premiere because there is some new music that you'll be the first to hear tonight and also revisions and Anthony I might start with you to say what um, what has this process been like for you to take the work from 36 years ago looking at it from a fresh perspective um, how has that how has that been well I think it's been a great process so I think I think starting with uh, thinking about what 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 it, in making, also thinking about making the opera a two-act presentation with one intermission, think about what structurally I'd have to do to make that work, and then thinking about uh, uh, working working on a new music that would bridge act two and three, which we're very excited to do, and uh, revisiting the score in terms of the orchestration, and et cetera. So the, that was I, was, I found that really fun. It was really interesting to me to kind of s s look at, you know, where I was half my lifetime ago. <laughs> and then, you know, how, you know, you know and, and kind of revisiting the discoveries I made, you know, when I was, you know, 34 or 35 years old. So that, so that, was, that was exciting for me and, and invigorating. And then, then thinking about how to, what I could do to, to refine it, but yet be true to my 
34-year-old self. Yeah, that's great. And, and Tulani, how about for you, the revisiting of this piece, there's including some new scenes. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I discovered I write a lot more tightly now. Um, <laughs> I, I had a similar experience in that um, uh, I've now lived longer than the subject of this artwork got to live, and I understand about growing, changing your uh, outlook on life, incorporating um, gratitude into your existence. Um, and so I, I felt like, wow, that was a good journey for me to have gone on at, how old were you? <laughs> when we wrote it, how old were 34. you? 34. Okay, I was 35. <laughs> I was 32. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I was grateful that the subject of it was one's internal journey um, because we're, uh, I'm still doing that, we're all still doing that. But I did um, discover that I say things uh, maybe more obliquely now, but shorter. And uh, so I wrote one piece, I said, I wonder if anybody will notice the style's really different. <laughs> um, but uh, Don't tell them what it is. <laughs> yeah, and then um, we did one thing. The first change we made um, was that I asked Anthony, could uh, we do a speech that had been spoken that I thought reading it 36 years later was boring, and I wanted to lift the language up and bring it to poetry, because most of it is poetry, and I felt like... Um, one of the people who wrote about it 36 years ago said it felt like I was being dutiful, which I was. I was trying to cover certain facts, but um, I said, Can, I, I just want to lift the language up, and then he said it to music, um, because um, he said, well, I was too tired to set it 36 years ago. <laughs> and I said, I think tired is what happened to me also. I just didn't have any more. <laughs> So um, it's great uh, to look at it again because I hadn't had an occasion to. Thank you so much, Tulani. Um, Kip, can you take us back to where this all started since, it, since you are the story author, which um, is... Sure. Yeah. Back okay. Um, like many of my generation, I encamp first encountered um, the autobiography of Malcolm X as, as, a, as something that I read probably in high school. And, you know, I... You would see, um, we, my family didn't live in New York City or in a major metropolitan area, so that your exposure to Malcolm directly was, was through um, the perverse uh, prism of, of broadcast television. And then uh, just reading the autobiography first as a high schooler and then studying it as a college student um, was a, a, an incredibly moving experience. And at that time, Anthony had already sort of launched his career as a musician and a composer, and we both grew up uh, heavily steeped in jazz, um, both looking backward from where we were and um, looking forward. And for, for me, when I was reading it, I was really struck by the, how much music was in Malcolm's life, that in the early parts of his life, in the dance halls, in, in um, the hustling, I mean, he has a scene with talking to Billie Holiday. And then when he begins his spiritual journey, 
both Anthony and I uh, had this strong connection with the spiritual music that was coming out of jazz in the early to mid 60s. And in particular, we really connected with um, A Love Supreme and the, the spiritual music of John Coltrane. Even though it's a different spiritual journey with a different sort of spiritual reference, the connections for us were real and were really strong. And so I'd reached out to, to Anthony, I think I was still in college, and said, you know, this could be a really powerful uh, music theater piece, is the compromise term I would use. And Anthony was already in the process of wanting to deal with um, extended forms. And that was very hard to do within the context of jazz. And he told me first, as he says to me many times, and since I was little, no, no, no. And that um, he really envisioned it as a through composed piece, that he hated you know, the notion of songs. He hated the notion of the music stopping and people talking. <laughs> and so he uh, insisted, as he has done for many years. And so that is what it became. And then once we had come to that conclusion, it was obvious that we needed language that was elevated, that was heightened. And Anthony had, was already collaborating with Tulani on music theater pieces. Uh, in New York, where we all were at the time. And so it, it, there was a, um, an energy in New York at that time in the late 70s and early 80s where we believed in collaboration and we believed that anything was possible and that we should just go ahead and do it. So we did. <laughs> well, that's... I'll I think that might understate the boldness that the three of you had in taking Malcolm X as a subject matter and uh, taking that subject matter all the way to Lincoln Center uh, with, uh, with the New York City Opera premiere. And I'm curious, Anthony, how you um, translated the, the story as Kip kind of imagined it and thought about these characters. I think most people might imagine that Malcolm X might be a heroic kind of tenor, like held in tenor, um, but you opted for a baritone, a pretty heroic baritone role too. But could you talk a little bit about the setting of the voices? Well, I think for me, tenors are always tricksters. Trick <laughs> tricksters, yeah. Yes, tricksters. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so for me, uh, when I was thought of, uh, Eventually, when Elijah and and was particularly particularly Street, is the this idea of you know this kind of subversive character who who who's who's trying staking out his own territory, et cetera. So, um, and and that's gone through my operas. If you look at Amistad, you look at you know other operas I've done, that, that that's that became became a role. And particularly with singer Thomas Young, I wrote a lot of roles for him. And, and so for me, the baritone is always the, and I think in, in African-American music, if you look at that, you know, who, who's the romantic hero in, in, you know, it's like Billy Eckstein. It's not, <laughs> it's not the height, it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not the height, it's not the tenor voice, it's more the baritone bass, baritone voice. You know, that, 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 kind, that kind of voice, that's, a, that's the voice, the, again, the trickster like Cab Calloway, or you know, uh, uh, that, that's a, that's that's a tenor voice. So 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 it's interesting because in a way I was addressing what kind of uh, 
how our community, the black community, looks at voices, which is very different from European, Eurocentric way of looking at, at looking at voices and the role, role that voices play in, in terms of cast, you know, casting characters. Anthony, could you, you also mention how the baritone is also in between uh, with um, Elijah on one side and then Reginald on the other? Yeah, it's in between, yeah, that's right. It's, it's me, me set on, and also I'm a baritone, so. <laughs> that's there of, you go. I mean, <laughs> so I, I could actually, I was actually singing everything, but, and, and my wife can testify to it, the agony of hearing me, you know, sing, sing at, at, like, at two in the morning, you know, singing, singing different, different parts, you know. I, I, try, I try to sing all the parts when I compose. <laughs> Well, I think in addition to the to the to the role, so Reginald as as Malcolm's brother, who is, who is a much deeper voice, right? And then we have uh, and then we have uh, Elijah Muhammad as the tenor, the trickster tenor tenor voice, and Malcolm Malcolm sort of between those two. Um, what, one of the things that's remarkable for me in the score is um, the incredible writing that you have for the ensemble, uh, for this group of, in our case, twelve singers, um, who take us through the journey of uh, all of the decades. Uh, sadly, too few decades in the case of Malcolm X, but, uh, but, but from one decade to another with different styles and uh, different identities. And I just would love to hear you talk a little bit about that, that, the community around Malcolm well, X. Yeah, well, yeah, the idea was to, to, to create a community around Malcolm that, that he, he doesn't grow up um, just by himself. It's, it's, it's in response to a community and the community response. And it takes on various different functions during the opera. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, uh, you know, in in the in Act One, Scene One, when you hear hear the, the choir, the the ensemble with Louise or Africa for Africans, it's almost like a rhythmic response. It's like like it's a mirror of what was going on. The almost the I look at the what's in the mind of the of of the a lead character, and so kind of revealing that through the course. And then later, you know, in Boston, when the ensemble becomes the people on the street, the people, the hustlers. You know, we're, you know, who are around around Boston, who are seducing Malcolm into this life. So I think think that that, and then later when they become the nation of Islam, or or, or part of the, a fruit of Islam, or so you know, so that's they, they take on, they evolve as Malcolm evolves, and and that, so that that was exciting for me. I, I love writing for the ensemble, and and they're the the, the real hidden heroes of, of the opera because there's so, so, some of their singing, what they have to sing is the most difficult stuff in the opera is uh, in the ensemble, which is probably crazy when you, you wouldn't tell a young composer, okay, write the most difficult music for, for the ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it is because it's intricate and it's rhythmic and, and they have to, how they, the precision they have to sing and also they're, they're also conveying the inner, the, the, the inner, the emotion of the characters too. Yeah, absolutely. Tulani, do you have, when you were writing the libretto, was the, the role of the community, the role of the people around Malcolm X, how, yeah. did, you, how did you approach that? I grew up in the South and uh, parading and marching in the streets. Uh, everyone did it from Daddy Grace to um, all the benevolent societies starting after the Civil War. Public music was uh, community building, and I think the kind of messaging that was in the music that started in the 50s with the sit-ins and marches became a part of a broad 
sense of identity for black people all over the country. Um, Detroit has done an amazing um, job of producing the next layer, the next generation of that music so that when we were all dancing to Marvin Gaye or Stevie Wonder in the 60s, that message got to uh, the entire globe and um, it also was part of the glue that you could go from one city to another uh, George Floyd is murdered. Whatever city you're in, there's a march, and they're going to sing songs Bernice Regan was singing in um, Georgia in 1965. So um, I think uh, that is part of what the music was doing, and as Anthony points out, it was happening in jazz at the same time. So, And by the way, I associate the baritone thing with the tenor saxophone in the jazz band. Okay. And yeah. I associate tenors <laughs> with the guys um, who were the lovers, Sam Cooke. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, Some, sometimes I think about the ensemble when they're in, in, in the uh, street there. They're a big band. They become the ensemble, the ensemble singers almost become like, you know, I think of the soprano, they're the trumpets. Mm -hmm. And then, the t you know, I have the baritones or the saxophones, and I have the trombones with, with, the, with the bass ba and the bass baritone. So you can actually hear the antipodal writing mm -hmm. that you might associate with Ellington or Strayhorn or Charles Mingus later in the 60s. But this idea of, you know, and I thought that that, that, that was an interesting way to approach the ensemble and choral writing in general is to, to draw from that rich, rich heritage of the of the of the of the uh, big band tradition from Fletcher Henderson to Ellington to to you know Mingus you know so that, that's something something I thought thought about in writing it. Yeah, beautiful. And in addition to to the ensemble of singers, we also have uh, of course an eight piece uh, jazz ensemble that's part of the orchestra. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that too. Um, this group. Well, that's, that's it was always part of it. In fact, the first incarnation when I did the first workshop of X, it was actually with my band. It was a ten. 10-piece band, so it was all that, <laughs> with with a couple string players, you know. Yeah. So, so, but but uh, but uh, so I think it because in a way it's also the story of improvisation, the story mm -hmm. of how of, of improvisational practice, how it developed from the 40s to the 60s. You know what Kip, Kip was talking about, you know the and the idea of you know how how there's a parallel in the development of, of mu these musical styles with the development of the political rhetoric. rhetoric. Yeah, amazing. Um, Kip, how has it been for you now watching, you were here this week to watch the final rehearsals. Could you tell us, without giving too much away, could you tell us a little bit about this production, what it's been like watching this new generation of artists uh, sure. inform the production? Okay. Um, when we were first working on the piece, it was the early 80s, and we were all in our 30s. And in a way, we were imagining the world that we had grown up with and how we had experienced and how we had absorbed it and how it had affected us on a very emotional level because we were really young, right? And then we spent a lot of time in the first rehearsals sort of relaying that world to a, already then a, a cast that was too young to have experienced it at all. And I think it was almost nostalgic 
in how it was how it ended up. And it's 36 years later. Um, nostalgia doesn't work anymore. We need something to carry this piece forward, to take it into the future without us. Uh, we are thrilled to have a production of this again in our lifetime, <laughs> but we at least have the good sense to recognize that if we want this piece to live beyond us, it has to be looking towards the future. It has to be absorbed, processed, and created by people of today. And I wrote a little note to Robert that I'm gonna to give to him later, that's Robert O'Hara, the director. And I said, thank you for the courage and vision to bring this piece into the 21st century. And we just all felt that that was the purpose of these productions. And our goal was to let it go. Thank you so much. Tulani? Um, I just wanted to say, um, due to illness, I missed every hour of rehearsal. <laughs> oh, no. Except the dress it, rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it for the first time yesterday. <laughs> and I was so blown away um, by how much uh, Robert has related it to the present. I cried for the first 20 minutes, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> because I was startled and uh, it was like having my eyes open to its potential. Um, so um, I'm uh, really thrilled because <laughs> I think, um, and I didn't get to interfere either, so <laughs> I'm like, um, and there are things that appear visually that I'm not going to describe that um, just astounded me in terms of making that journey. Yeah. Thank you so much, Delani. And Anthony, maybe as a last word, is there um, anything you'd like to mention about working well, directly on this production and the future? Well, I think Rob Roberts a visionary, and, and uh, I think he's really... Uh, it's been a, it's kind of, I feel like it's a launch. <laughs> it's a launching pad. Maybe it's something, something that, that, that happens that, that uh, take, takes this piece into the future. And, and also uh, thinking about how it resonates, you know, things that happened, you know, f you know, 40, 50 years ago, you know, still resonate today. And, and uh, that was, that's apparent in the libretto too. And, but, but I think that what, what it brings to light is the, that, uh, you know, also the, the, hope, the hopefulness that we can, we, in wrestling with the past, we can, we can find, find a path to the future. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think Robert has really captured that. And uh, it's, been, it's been very exciting for me to see, to see well, I, I was here for the, all the rehearsals. So I, I kind of slowly saw the everything reveal, reveal itself. I would say, oh, well, what's that? <laughs> you know, like, wow. And then then uh, they said, well, we have this and that. Oh, cool. That, yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, and I, I, invariably, when he, when, I, when, he, when he explained more of it, I was, I was intrigued. He, he kind of works in layers, you know, like there's one layer that's happening and then another layer happens. Then all of a sudden the dance layer happens. happened. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> This is this is this is this is completely this is this is transforming everything and this is so so exciting for me because when I, when I was working writing X my experience before that was X was my first opera but before that I wrote dance music mm -hmm. 
I wrote a lot of music for dance. And so it went back to, you know, wh where I was and where I was coming from musically before, before I did X. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, when we first talked about the origins of this opera, I remember you had mentioned that um, you wanted to do the story of Malcolm X because you felt it was, um, you know, a tragic, Malcolm X is a tragic uh, trajectory in a way of his history. And my experience watching this rehearsal process with this unbelievably gifted cast, a great director, and this dazzling score was that it does not feel like a tragedy. It feels aspirational. It feels like the, the energy is all towards this future. And I had just have to say that the, it's taken 36 years for the piece to come back to the stage, but its time has really come. And this is going to be a historic night. I'm also so glad to say that we have, we've only been able to do this production thanks to a number of co-producers that are also here tonight with us. Opera Omaha, um, Seattle Opera, the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Uh, they have all taken this on with us. Thank you so much to our partners. Thanks to them, we've been able to realize this piece at the scale that Anthony and Tulani and Kip and, of course, Malcolm X deserve. So thank you all for that. And we hope you have a great night. Enjoy it. Thank you so much.